Um, hi, I'm Dwayne, one of the pastors here. Um, and um, I was reflecting on a story when Elisa and I were in our early 30s. Um, we lived in San Antonio, and uh, Elisa's grandfather was spending the winter, as he often did in San Antonio, but his wife, Elisa's grandmother, had just died. Um, and so he was on his own, and he really liked to go to Mass. Um, but uh, Elisa's dad didn't like to take him. He had left the Catholic Church. Uh, and so Elisa and I took him very frequently. We would take him to Mass uh, because it was something that was really important to him, and he didn't have anybody else to go with him. And uh, there was this one particular time when, I, I forget how we found out about it, but there was one particular church in, in San Antonio that once a week had a special dispensation, I guess, from the diocese or the Vatican or something to do mass in Latin, all in Latin. And of course, since, if you don't know, since 1973, when the Second Vatican Council sort of said that mass had to be in the vernacular, in the local language, that was pretty rare to, to find a, an all Latin mass. Um, so we went, and we went to this mass, and the whole thing was conducted in Latin, um, which was really, really interesting and fascinating uh, for a couple of reasons. So I'm sitting there thinking about Grandpa Tom, who is 80, and for most of his life, Mass in Latin, that was his experience. And it, it, being in that environment again, and hearing those Latin phrases chanted and sung, brought him back to a place of faith in his life. It was comforting to him to be in that environment. Now for me... Grown up in, uh, you know, a Protestant evangelical context, Baptist setting, it probably, you know, wouldn't have been that meaningful for me, except that I am a choral musician. So I teach choir, I've sung in choirs my whole life, and right now that's what I do at the University of Delaware, I teach choral music education. And so those texts in Latin are texts that I have sung over and over again, and I knew the meaning of what was being said and, what, and the whole service. So it was a new experience for me in terms of a, a spiritual, in terms of a church worship context. But I knew the words and I, understand, I understood the musical and the liturgical application. So for me, it was like bringing together these two worlds of my faith as well as sort of this academic knowledge or understanding of what these texts were about. And it was a pretty powerful moment, uh, like being in that environment. And it was all because of the liturgy that was happening. So we're going to talk today a little bit about liturgy. About what is liturgy? Um, we're in the middle of this series where we're talking about, um, we, we're calling it in spirit and in truth. There's a story in the Gospels where um, Jesus encounters a woman at a well and he has a conversation with her. Uh, and after amazing her, she, she says, well, wow, you must be a really smart guy. You must be a prophet. And I have a question for you. <laughs> and the question she asks him is, Hmm, I'm a Samaritan, and my ancestors say that we're supposed to worship on, that, on this mountain, and, and the Jews, you say that you're supposed to worship on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Which is it? And of course, we don't need to get into all the history of why the Samaritans had a different idea of what worship looked like, but, but Jesus' answer was, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when you will neither worship on that mountain or in Jerusalem, but you will worship me in spirit and truth. Those who worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth. And it occurred to me as I was preparing this message about um, the idea of liturgy, and, and, and Keith and Sabrina and I were talking about, well, is there, a, is there a key scripture that we can key off of that kind of, that kind of 
maybe explains to us, God says, here's how worship should look. Well, the funny thing is I couldn't find one. (laughs) There's no scripture passage that says this is the way worshiping Jesus should look. It takes different forms. So we're talking today about liturgy because we want to learn from the different ways that Christians all over the world express their own worship of God and of Jesus. So we want to talk about liturgy. Um, So what is liturgy? I think we'll just start there. Because some of us use that word or we hear that word and we're not really sure what it means. I'm going to give you a very simple definition and and it's just this. Liturgy is a formula for Christian worship. That's it. So if you've ever thought that liturgy was formulaic, you're right, it is. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. It is a formula for Christian worship. And I don't know about you, but I didn't grow up in a very liturgical setting, and so um, I often had conversations with people in sort of a more more free evangelical worship context, almost in a little bit of of a judging kind of way. Like, I don't want somebody else telling me the words that I should say in worship. Nobody else is going to write a prayer. Those prayers should come from the heart, right? So we're going to talk about that a little bit today because I think it's really valuable in a couple of different ways that we talk about liturgy. One is is that idea of getting getting rid of that, that sort of judgment, right? The way people worship Jesus is the way people worship Jesus. And by understanding things that are unfamiliar to us, we can gain a better appreciation for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and and we can love them better by seeing the beauty in the way that other people structure their worship, right? Even if it looks different than ours. But the second thing is that we can sometimes, by exploring and examining other traditions of worship, we can integrate things into our own worship that can be more meaningful. I'll give you a quick example. Here at Life Path, years ago, some of you may not remember this, years ago we didn't used to do common prayer at all. And some of you remember that, and some of you are thinking, wow, that is such an integral part of my worship experience at Life Path. I can't imagine Life Path without common prayer. It came about because we were sort of talking about ways that we can sort of feature corporate prayer in our gathering And we looked to other more liturgical traditions where you'll find in a Catholic Mass or you'll find in an Anglican service, you'll find the prayers of the people. A time when prayers are shared out loud in in a very similar way. Now we adapted it and we integrated it into our own life path liturgy. And it has enriched and enhanced what we're doing. So sometimes by looking at other traditions, at other liturgies, we can find things that might be meaningful in our own liturgies. And in case you're not sure, uh, life path does have a liturgy. We have a liturgy, if you haven't noticed, right? We start with the worship songs. We move into common prayer. We sometimes have a story space. We dismiss our kids. We have a message. We have a catchbox time. And at the end, the very last thing you say before you go out into the world is what? Send us out as a people known by love. Some of you know that. You've been here enough that it's become ingrained in you. We have a liturgy that we have developed It just doesn't look like some other churches have, right? So we're going to talk about this, because this is fun. And I promise I'm going to try not to make this an academic lecture. So if we get a little, if we get, if we're approaching like three hours, somebody just wave your hand at me and tell me it's time, time to cut it short, okay? Yeah, sorry, this, uh, I've worked really hard to try to not make this academic. So, um, all right, so we're going to talk about liturgy in three ways. There are three sort of categories of liturgy that I think are, are worth examining. And one is a liturgy of time. 
And we're going to talk about that momentarily. Uh, the next is a liturgy of word. And then the third one is a liturgy of song. And hopefully you can kind of see, see where I'm going with this. Uh, let's talk about a liturgy of time first. Uh, when I talk about a liturgy of time, I'm really talking about the church calendar, the church year. And many of us grew up in situations where, um, like for me, example, we, we maybe we lit candles for Advent once every Sunday, but we didn't really lean into Advent as a season. We certainly didn't do anything for Lent because, you know, depriving yourself of stuff during Lent, how is that spiritual? Jesus set us free. We should celebrate. We shouldn't give things up for Lent. Well, uh, I didn't really understand why that was something that was important. So I've got a quote here. It's from Thomas Merton, and I, I love this. Uh, I won't read the whole thing, but just the first bit, but... Uh, Thomas Merton says this, Time, which is now enclosed between the two advents of Christ, his first coming in humility and obscurity and his second coming in majesty and power, has been claimed by God for his own. Time is to be sanctified like everything else by the presence and the action of Christ. How about that? God, time has been claimed by God. So the whole idea of the church calendar is a beautiful thing that we progress through every year. We, we remember the first coming of Jesus at Advent in humility, and we remember the second coming of Jesus in, in power and glory at Easter, and all the seasons in between as we mark time. We all mark time in various ways, right? As a professor, I mark time by semester, and I'm about to head into the spring of 23, which is a part of the greater academic year, 22-23, right? And I mark time in those ways. If you have kids in school, you might mark time by, you know, school or summer break or those kinds of things. We, we mark time because it helps us. Maybe we mark time by the seasons. Oh, we're in winter right now. We're heading into spring. You know, many, 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 many years ago, seasons of, of harvest, uh, those kinds of things would have marked time, right? There's a particular aisle in the grocery store where I mark time, because that aisle always tells me what time of year it is. Because on about December 24th or 25th, all the Christmas stuff went away and the Valentine's candy came out. So now I know, I remember to buy some Valentine's something or other for my wife. And when that goes away, it'll probably be a 4th of July aisle. And then when that goes away, the Halloween candy comes out, right? So we can always tell what time of year it is by that one aisle in the grocery store. We mark time in different ways. So why not, as followers of Jesus, mark time according to what God has done in our lives and in the world. And that's what the liturgical calendar is. So, quick overview. The liturgical year starts at Advent. It's kind of weird, but it always does. Starts in November. That's the beginning of the liturgical year. And you have Advent, which progresses up until Christmas. You have the Christmas season, which there is actually a season of Christmas, which is usually around 12 days, um, because that takes, us, takes you right up to the day of Epiphany. Epiphany Day is January 6th. Different liturgical traditions vary from this point forward, but then there's a time where you have the, maybe you have the season of Epiphany, uh, which lasts from that Epiphany Day or Three Kings Day all the way until uh, Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras. So my daughter goes to college in New Orleans, and uh, she just posted to her Instagram uh, a picture of a slice of king cake and said, it's great when your professors bring in king cake for the whole class. If you're not familiar with this tradition, a king cake is something that begins happening in that area of the country around Three Kings Day, right, which is Epiphany, January 6th, and you, and you serve a king cake, which is a particular kind of cake with a, 
with a delicious filling, and somewhere hidden in that cake is a little baby Jesus, and if you get the slice of cake with baby Jesus, you get to bake the next king cake to the next party. You get to bring the next king cake, right? But as a tradition, this king cake thing goes from, from that epiphany all the way to Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras is not just a day of debauchery. There's a reason for that. It's the day before Ash Wednesday because that's the beginning of the season of Lent when we are more penitent and we are mindful of the suffering of Jesus and what Jesus did for us. And we go through the season of Lent, something that we do here at Life Path, and then Lent takes us to Easter. And then there's an Easter season that actually lasts longer than one day in the church calendar. Easter is a season. There's several weeks of it. And then after that, we go into what's called ordinary time. Now, that doesn't mean it's just boring and plain. Ordinary from the word ordinal meaning counting. So we're, we're actually counting the, the, the time, marking the time through the church here. All that to say that leaning into a way to mark time using the life of Jesus is actually something that can enhance our discipleship in so many ways. It can be a beautiful and wonderful expression. So as we look at this today, I'm going to look at things that we can do together. And I'm going to look at things that we can do alone, right? So as we mark time, we can mark time together by using, I'm going to make a little matrix here. So we can do, um, you know, the, the seasons of the church year. We can celebrate those things. We can honor those things. Um, If you read our Advent booklet during Advent, you were participating in a corporate expression of of the time, of of liturgy of time, right? Um, So we can do those kinds of things. We can lean more into those. Um, As we approach Lent, be thinking about ways that you can maybe incorporate some practices in your life that would be beneficial to you. When we're alone, there may be other ways that we can mark time. Oh, wait, you know what? I forgot one. Not just the seasons of the year. I'm going to write Sundays because this is, another, this is another liturgy of time. Do you know why we worship on Sundays? Because the early church decided they wanted to worship, celebrate the day that Jesus resurrected. The Sabbath is Saturday in Jewish tradition, but the early Christians were like, hey, we're going we're gonna to mark Sunday as the beginning of the week. We come to church, one of the first things we do on the first day of the week, and there's a reason for it. There's a, a, there's a deep, deep connection to a liturgy of time. But what about when you're by yourself? What can you do? I remember growing up, we were always encouraged to have a regular devotional time, a regular quiet time, and, and often that can be more powerful and more meaningful if it's at a regular time every day. If you're a person who likes to do that, if you like to spend time in prayer or like to spend time reading scripture, finding the time that works for you. Maybe you like to do it first thing in the morning when you get up. And you do that with your coffee and before you start your day. Maybe uh, at the end of the day, you have a time of prayer. There's a wonderful tradition uh, in many, in many uh, uh, Christian expressions that use a prayer of examine. And a prayer of examine is a prayer that, that, that allows you to go back through your day and think about both your failures and your triumphs and offer all of that to God and receive the grace of God to begin again the next day. And you do that at the end of the day, right? There are ways that you can mark time in monastic traditions um, there's a a tradition of praying the hours where you pray when the sun comes up you pray at six at nine at 12 at three you pray when the sun goes down you pray before you go to bed and these prayers are marked out so is there a way that you can integrate some sort of regular prayer rhythm i remember years ago we had someone at our uh, meal community who um the meal community meets at my house and my address is 606 Apple Road and this person put in their phone an alarm that went off every day at 606 p.m. 
So when the alarm went off at 6.06, it, were, it would remind them to pray for our meal community at 6.06 every day. And it was just a, sort of a little liturgy, a little liturgy of time, like reminding them to, to, to engage in some connection at that moment, right? So we can think about ways we can do this. We can have prayer times. Um, you know, we can have uh, certain rhythms in our life of... Uh, H, Y, and I don't know, whatever. Um, I'm a musician. I can't spell the word rhythm. Um, I, can, I can do rhythm. I just can't spell it. Um, so uh, we can have certain rhythms in our life, rhythms of gratitude, rhythms of, of connection with others, right? So there's, there are ways that we can engage in a liturgy of time, all right? Thank you. Is that better? Awesome. Um, yeah, I'm not used to teaching with a whiteboard. I can move that too. Um, so the second thing that I want to talk about a little bit is um, liturgy of the word. And when we, when we talk about liturgy, this is maybe more like what we think about. We think about liturgy of the word is like, okay, well, when I go to a, a high church or a liturgical church, right, there's, they're reading all this stuff and the language sounds kind of flowery and it, it sounds like, you know, it doesn't really make sense sometimes. And that's kind of what we think of. But, but if we simplify it, liturgy of the word is really just a way that... Um, that everything that happens in a worship service is prescribed. And uh, it, it, it allows there to be kind of a familiarity to it. There allows it, it allows it to be, a, there's sort of a flow. Um, it's essentially just the order of worship. And like I said, we kind of have a liturgy here too. It just is a little bit more elaborate and ornate in some other Christian traditions. So I want to talk about liturgy of the word in a couple of ways. I want to talk about it in prayer. And I want to talk about it in terms of scripture. So liturgy of the word is just kind of a prescription of ways to pray and ways to engage with scripture. And in terms of prayer, um, one of the beautiful things about liturgical prayer is that it's something that engages everybody across all kinds of geographical and time boundaries. So I have here with me the Book of Common Prayer, which is the order of, of worship. Uh, it, it, it sort of um, lays out all the different ways that you can have any sort of meaningful uh, worship service in an Anglican or Episcopal church, right? So that's what the Book of Common Prayer is. And what's fascinating is that um, there are parts of the service in the Anglican church that don't change. They're the same every single Sunday. Same with the Catholic Mass. There are parts that don't change. But there are also parts that change every day. And those are new and different every day. So we have the parts that are called the ordinary that happen all the time. And then we have the other parts that, that, that change, uh, that are proper. They're called proper to the day. So, so this third Sunday after Epiphany, which is what today is, I looked up here, what is the third Sunday after Epiphany? Here is the collect for the day. This is a prayer, and it is today, specifically today, the third Sunday after Epiphany, and here's the prayer. And you can listen along and you can pray with me if you want. Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That prayer is being read today by millions of fellow believers, brothers and sisters across the world. Isn't that cool? That prayer, maybe not in English even most of the time, because it's going to be worldwide. There's something about the liturgy of prayer, praying things that other people are praying in solidarity with others that can be beautiful and meaningful. 
even moments of praying the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, that so many Christians around the world know, you can come together with a group of Christians and you can start and you can begin Our Father and everyone will likely join in and be able to finish with you. There's something beautiful about that. So liturgy of prayer isn't formulaic in, in a way that robs it of life. You, 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 you have to understand that there is something about it that gives it life when we share those words in solidarity with others. Now maybe we don't do that all the time. Maybe we do want times of prayer where we are praying spontaneously and from the heart. But you know why it's good to have prayers written down? Because sometimes you don't know what to pray. Sometimes your heart hurts and you don't, know, you don't have the words but you can open up a prayer book and you can read what someone else has written and you can offer that to God as a prayer. And it's beautiful. It's really meaningful. So our brothers and sisters around the world who are in more liturgical settings than we are, when they're praying prayers that are scripted out, written by somebody else, let's not think of that as, as you know, less original or less godly than what we do. It's beautiful in, a, in its own way. And I think that's important. So the liturgy of prayer um, is one of the ways that the liturgy of the word happens. The other one is uh, scripture itself. And, um, and, and as I said, there are things that happen every day, uh, every time you gather for worship in a church service, but in, in these liturgical settings. But then there are things that change every day. And one of the things that changes every day is the word, the scripture, the actual scriptures that you teach. And um, one of my favorite pieces of this is, is you can actually find online if you look for the lectionary, Revised Common Lectionary, um, you'll find that, that there's a, an actual kind of prescribed way that there are readings from Scripture. It's a three-year cycle, and if you follow the lectionary and read those readings every day for three years, you'll get through pretty much all of Scripture. Not all of it, 100%, but you'll get through every book, every main idea, and it's a really, really beautiful thing that someone sat down and sort of planned that out, right? Reading scripture aloud in church or, or having those kinds of, of moments is a big part of liturgical worship. Now, again, I keep going back to my past. I grew up in a church where really the only scripture that was read was the one that the preacher was about to preach on. And we were going to take it apart. We were going to dissect it. We were going to understand it. We were going to talk about the Greek. And we were going to you know, talk about its impact on your life. But if you go to a more liturgical setting, Catholic, Anglican, even Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopal, Presbyterian, you'll find they just read the Bible out loud for apparently no reason at all. <laughs> but it's beautiful and it's wonderful to hear the word of God just spoken into the room and spoken and for you to just receive it. Not to listen, to analyze, to, to do a Bible study, but to receive the word of God as holy, divine, inspired, Right? That's pretty beautiful. And that is a lot of what this liturgy is about. So I'm going to go high-tech liturgy. I'm going to do some scripture readings here today. I'm going to use my phone because it was a lot easier for me to put it all in one place. Um, but um, we're going to go through and we're actually going to go through today's lectionary. We're going to read the scripture. And so what would happen in a more liturgical setting is you might have different voices, different readers for each of these. But you might also have the same reader. And someone would read the scripture. And at the end of the reading, I'm going to say the word of the Lord. And the congregation will respond, thanks be to God. Yeah, some of you know this. Yeah, right. Yeah, awesome. A reading from the book of Psalms, chapter 27. 
The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Isn't it cool to just listen and receive? A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. The bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And a reading from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, 
land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kind of interesting, isn't it, to put on a different tradition for just a moment. That's not something we typically do here. But hearing the word spoken out loud, without exposition, without teaching, without any of that, it can be meaningful and powerful. And if we trust the Spirit, the Spirit spoke to each of you as I was reading that. Beautiful. And of course, a little chuckle at at Paul's whole like, yeah, yeah, I know I baptized them, but I can't remember if I baptized anybody else, but you get the point. Remembering that those who wrote Scripture were also human, (laughs) also people. So, So the liturgy of the Word can be about prayer, and it can be about Scripture. So what we do in the liturgy of the Word is we can read Scripture out loud, as we're together, um, we can engage in common prayer. And many of you do, and that's awesome. But I would encourage you, if you haven't engaged in that, utilize that. Write down our prayers together. Right? Common prayer is something that we do that is liturgical. It is the liturgy of the word as we pray together. Right? So these are things we can do. And then what about when you're by yourself? Well, there's uh, prayer books. Some of us maybe have a little bit of an aversion to those. Keith and I can help you figure out which ones might be good. But um, I have one that I've used a lot. It's uh, called Celtic Daily Prayer, and it's just got prayers of the day. Um, Even if you engaged with us on the... um, Uh, our Advent booklet. There were little prayers in the Advent booklet at the end of each reading. And if you prayed that, you were praying in a liturgical way because you were praying along with everybody at Life Path who was praying that same prayer that day, right? So there's there's prayer. um, There's uh, scripture reading, right? Um, Many of us like to try to read the Bible, but we're not sure, like, what order do we go in? Do I start in Genesis and go straight through? The answer to that is no. Um, There's a better way to do that because you get stuck in Leviticus and you stop and you never come back. Um, there, there are ways that you can engage with reading scripture, um, reading plans, but one of the things I might encourage you is to explore the lectionary. Think about what, like what I just did, those readings, it didn't take us very long, and maybe that's what you do, and you find the, 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 the lectionary, um, meaningful for you, and you engage with scripture in that way, but you can read scripture on your own. You can engage in liturgy of the word, both as a group and alone by yourselves. So our brothers and sisters around the world who engage in liturgical worship, they celebrate the time, they celebrate uh, through the word and the order of worship and the prayers and the scriptures. But another thing that we do is in song. This is where I have to watch myself not to go too long. So I'm going to give you a brief history of music. 
Brief history of music in the church. Okay, so this is really cool. One of my favorite bits of trivia, and maybe you know this, is the whole reason singing got started in churches was very practical and very lowbrow. It had nothing to do with like high exaltation and the, the exhortations in scripture that say, you know, sing unto God. No, it had nothing to do with that. It actually had to do with the fact that a few hundred years into this whole Christianity thing in Europe, uh, in these churches, when we, people were gathering together, the priest was going through the liturgy and had all these readings that he had to do, and he had to say this scripture, and he had to say this prayer and say this, but the buildings were Romanesque cathedrals. This is before Gothic, so not the big ones with the flying buttresses and the tall spires. These are flat, low, wide, with sort of archways. Think like, Rome, like Roman architecture. These Romanesque cathedrals were expansive, huge, made of stone, very, very far to the back. And the practical element here is it was really hard to understand the priest. It was. And the priest could say, you know, whatever the prayer of the day was, or... He could just start chanting and he could elongate what he was saying. And it would make it to the back. And then everybody could understand, because remember, nobody could read. So the only way you could engage scripture and prayer and those kinds of things was by hearing what the priest had to say. So it was really important. So that's where chant began. So we get chant. So chant pops up all over Europe in various ways. Different people writing different chants because when they said the prayer, they sung it this way. But when they said the prayer, they sung it this way. Then uh, the higher ups in the church were like, wait, this is too chaotic. We need to sort of collect these and make sure that we have sort of a codified thing. And the, the one we know best is Gregorian. If you've ever heard of Gregorian chant, all that means is it's in the collection that is attributed to Pope Gregory. Um, he didn't really write them all, that's legend, but uh, it was actually, Pope Gregory was in like in the 5th century, but around the 11th century is when they finally collected all these and put them into one thing and said, okay, if you're going to say this prayer on this day, like the liturgy says, here's the tune. And you can actually find what the chant tune is, right? So that began, so chanting was happening all over, it started to become the same, and then people started thinking, well, maybe, maybe we can add a little something to the chant. So one, we'd have one voice singing the chant, and then another voice would add like a little harmony line, do-do-do, and that was kind of cool. And sometimes it would even be in a different language. Sometimes there'd be up to like three languages all sung at the same time. That was really confusing. But eventually, it became four voices became pretty standard, and you would have a chant melody, and you have lots of different harmony parts, right? And so that became the, the essence of church music. And that began sort of 13th, 14th, 15th century, kind of in there. We're beginning to see the, the emerging of music four-part singing in churches, but it was all liturgical still. It was the prayers and the scriptures that were being sung as part of the church service. So remember, all Christians at this point were Catholic. There was nobody else at this point. So around 10th century, 11th century is when the schism happened, and so we had Orthodox, and they took the music and they transformed it in their own ways. And so if you hear music in an Orthodox church, it's going to sound a little different than, than those in a Western church, right? And then along comes our, our, our kind of our three-part reformation that happens in, in the... Uh, what, late 16th, early 17th century, right? And we get the Protestant Reformation, and music is a big part of that Reformation. Everybody gets sort of done with the dry, crusty, you know, ang like Catholic church music. The Anglican church music that derives from that, it sounds really similar. It just has English words. So if you go to an Anglican church, you hear music that sounds, in essence, pretty similar, right? Calvin and his whole branch of the Reformation, Calvin was like, oh, music is of the devil. We can't do music at all. He took music out of the church along with all the icons and everything. It had to be plain, boring, simple because then you're focused on God. He did allow singing, but the only singing could be psalms. It had to be singing the psalmody, right? So, so that was music in a Calvinist setting. It was very kind of austere. And then we had our good friend Luther. And Martin Luther did something radical with music. He said, you know, we, we need to have music, 
Martin Luther really loved music. He thought it engaged the heart. It engaged people to be able to really uh, um, engage their emotions and, and be with God in a really unique way. And so he used music, but he didn't want to use the music of the Catholic Church, obviously. So he, he created kind of this, this music that was unique to his movement, to the Lutheran movement. And it was based on German popular music at the time, right? So Martin Luther took a style of music that could be commonly heard in any, any place. Um, and it was this sort of this four-part, four like, we call it strophic. And what that means is it's basically the same music with different verses every time. So you come back and you have like four verses, right? Just like a hymn. So hymns, essentially were invented by Martin Luther. And many of the old German chorales, the Lutheran chorales that we see that have multiple verses that look like hymns, there are actually a couple dozen of them that were written by Martin Luther himself. He was a composer as well. And he believed that music should be in the vernacular, the language of the people, and it should be in a style that sounds like what people like to hear and like to sing and listen to. He even says, in, in one of the, the things that I've read of him, he said the reason he said it in four-part harmony is because he wanted to appeal to the young people. And get them engaged in, in participating in church. Which sounds a little backwards to me. It was the young people who wanted to sing in four-part harmony because they were doing that out in the streets and then wherever they were. And he's like, well, let's create music that sounds like what they want. Fast forward to today. We have all kinds of different styles of music, don't we? But guess what? A music that, that engages with guitar and a cajon and a drum set and a bass guitar and all that and it sounds like rock music or pop music. Kind of doing the same thing Luther did. Let's appeal to people. Let's put this music in a language, in a style that people understand. But what about people who sing hymns? Nothing wrong with that either. Because those hymns are beautiful and amazing and they have an amazing liturgical history and it was part of, of that amazing uh, reformation that happened. But what about the people who sing uh, anthems in an Anglican church or they sing motets in a Catholic church? It's beautiful too. It's a different style. We don't do four-part, five-part, six-part choral music here. But I spent last January uh, in Cambridge where I was participating in and, and my, my students were singing with some of these Anglican church choirs in evensong services and it was beautiful and amazing. So the liturgy of song is wide and it's varied and all of it is amazing and it honors God. So this morning, you may not have caught this, we sang a hymn this morning, but we sang a hymn in the style of the kind of music that we normally do up here. We do that a lot. We include things from other liturgies. We include things uh, maybe in other languages or maybe that come from other cultures. And that's part of this liturgy of song. See, I told you I wouldn't be very long in telling you the history of music in church. So as we're singing together, we can sing songs, we can sing hymns, we sing choruses. Maybe we in, maybe incorporate some other sort of other cultures, right? Many of you... Um, many of you were, were here in this room when we hosted the gospel choir, the UD gospel choir that came and performed. And it was a different cultural experience, but man, was it infused with the Spirit, right? It was honoring God, but it was not something that we could do. Like, God bless us if, if me and Jess and Ben and all of us came up here and tried to do gospel music. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. Um, so we can engage in these kinds of things when we're, when we're together. But what we can do when we're by ourselves is maybe music is part of your expression of worship privately. Maybe you like to turn on, um, you know, praise music or praise and worship music and that engages you. Maybe you try something else. Maybe you try to find some chant that might work for you. Maybe you try to find some, some old hymns 
I'm sure you, all this stuff is on Apple Music and Spotify. And maybe you try to engage with something in a, that, that maybe you haven't quite heard before. Look at the text. Find some good choral music that's in Latin. I promise you if you find a choral piece in Latin, it's come from the church. So just find a Latin choral piece and then just Google the, the words and find the translation and read along as the music is happening. And use that. Experience a different kind of culture, right? So we can use music in our private worship as well. Spotify. <laughs> I'm going to write Spotify. We're going to sanctify Spotify. Spotify for Jesus. Okay. So, um, so this is the idea. So we have things that we can do together to engage the liturgy of time, the liturgy of word, and the liturgy of song. We have things that we can do alone to engage the liturgy of time, the liturgy of the word, and the liturgy of song. And, and here's what I want um, from this point forward. I'd, I'd like to challenge you um, to pick one of these. Pick one of these squares and then pick one thing that would fit in that square that you would be willing to do this week. Stretch yourself a little bit. I'll give you a minute. You don't have to share, but think of it. What would you do? Maybe you want to find the lectionary. Let me write that down too. If you don't remember some of the things we said, maybe you, maybe you look for the lectionary here, right? Maybe you, maybe you go on Spotify to find some, some music that might challenge you or stretch you, right? Maybe you might think about rhythms of prayer to, to engage in the liturgy of time. So pick one, and now that you have it in your mind, to not let you off the hook real easy, I want you to choose a when and a how. When are you going to do it this week? And how is it going to fit into your schedule? So this, um, this whole message series um, is, is unusual for us because I don't have a, a big inspirational takeaway. I just kind of wanted to give you an overview of what liturgy looks like in some other contexts. And again, the end goal here is for us to understand our brothers and sisters who express their worship differently than we do. And secondly, to maybe add a little piece of something that might enrich our own worship, that might enrich our own discipleship. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about themes like the, the objects, the physical, tangible objects of worship. Um, we're going to be talking about um, physical movement, bodily movement, and, and using our bodies in ways that are worshipful, uh, different postures and different things like that. So it's going to be really, really interesting and hopefully gives us a nice broad idea. One of the ways that we always engage liturgically, both by moving our bodies and with objects and symbolism, is the table. Not every church does this every week. It's another thing that we kind of added in. I know growing up, we didn't do this every week. Keith, I don't think your church did every week either, right? So, um, so many of us come from traditions where this wasn't a weekly occurrence. But again, early in Life Path, we decided, you know, this is really important to bring people together to, to celebrate communion, to celebrate the Lord's Supper and what he offers us. So this is kind of your moment to, as you're thinking about what you're going to do to engage with the liturgy in some way, we're going to ask you, if you want, if the table's open to everyone, this is, this is an open table, so anyone, regardless of who you are, can come forward. We're going to ask you to come down these aisles here, and you'll come to the center. We'll have our servers. Who are our servers here? 
All right, awesome. So you'll come down these aisles, come to the center, and you'll hear the words, the bread of life given for you. Another nice bit of liturgy we have here at Life Path. 